Hi, I'm Nathaniel Skye, the host of the Immersion Nation podcast. Here, the greatest minds in immersive entertainment create and conjure, muse and imagine the cultural revolution that is unfolding before us. That is immersive entertainment. Welcome. This week in the interview, we talk with Kendra Slack and Jordan Kopechka of Linked Dance Theater, a group based in New York City that creates immersive experiences that utilize a multitude of mediums in their work, but of course, emphasize dance. We talk about their paths and how Linked Dance Theater somewhat organically broke down that fourth wall. Their most recent in-person immersive experience, Remembrance, the adventure and challenge of creating Remembrance on Governor's Island, which is right off the south tip of Manhattan. We discuss the concept of creating an immersive experience in the world of Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water. And naturally, touch on a multitude of other topics, including a mid-20th century group of artists and activists called the Situationists, who could very well be considered the philosophical grandparents of the rising experience economy. Before we jump into the interview, however, I want to give you lovely listeners out there some extra context around this week's guests and relevant experiences. I should note that this conversation is something of a time capsule from a different world. We recorded this interview in early February, when very few of us had even heard the faintest whispers of a new pathogen beginning to spread through Asia. As such, some of the discussion may seem maybe refreshingly out of step with our current reality. Moving from there, let's start with the experience Remembrance. Remembrance is an immersive theater and dance piece that allows you to explore the memories of Margaret, a woman struggling with Alzheimer's disease. We discuss this experience in great depth in the interview, so I'll leave off simply saying that this piece is the winner of the 2019 Immersion Award for Best Site-Specific Immersive and has good potential for future remounts once such things are possible. The second experience I want to talk about briefly while not addressed specifically in this discussion, is Linked Dance Theater's new show, Like Real People Do, Long Distance Relationship Division. A new installation of the serialized Like Real People Do saga, built to be enjoyed online while staying safer at home. In true Kendra and Jordan form, this piece takes advantage of the online immersive medium, rather than accepting it as a necessary concession, and is described on the website as follows. Like Real People Do, Long Distance Relationship Division is an online, solo experience that is highly interactive and episodic. Over the course of four episodes, each lasting 30 to 40 minutes, you will delve into the world of the Department of Manhattan Memory and explore how distance, timing, trust, and communication affect our relationships and our memories of those relationships. Finally, to introduce our guest, Kendra Slack and Jordan Kopechka. This is Kendra Slack, um, and I'm co-artistic director of Link Dance Theater. And my name is Jordan Kopechka. I am co-artistic director of Link Dance Theater. Kendra, originally from Austin, Texas, found the first threads of what would become Link Dance Theater in 2009 while attending Ithaca College in New York. She worked with the internationally renowned immersive theater company Punch Drunk as a performer in Sleep No More and of course, has built Link Dance Theater over the last decade into the widely acclaimed leader in the immersive entertainment space that it is today. Jordan, a man of many hats, is an NYU alumni and in his time there found some of his first exposure to the world of immersive entertainment. At the same time as building Link Dance Theater with Kendra and working as the co-artistic director, Jordan is an associate creative director at VaynerMedia, working on social and digital creative. Finally, according to his NYU alumni bio, Jordan suspects that his creativity likely stems from sitting upside down too much as a child. So, now that you lovely listeners are apprised of all the important details that preface the interview, we are on to the next. Oh, also, stick around after the discussion for the Immersive Community Brief, where we first break down the annual dollar value of the immersive industry as a whole, 
note the upcoming recon festival, and finally, talk about a TV show about an alternate reality game. This week, the Immersion Nation podcast is brought to you by none other than Immersion Nation's Experience Directory, a great resource to find immersive experiences for your adventuring enjoyment. This includes a multitude of remote and digital experiences to be enjoyed from the safety of your own home. Typically, immersive entertainment is almost exclusively an in-person medium. Thus, enjoying new immersive adventures often requires a plane ticket in addition to a ticket to the experience. But because in-person is a little problematic right now, many of the most brilliant immersive creators are producing interactive work to be enjoyed via Zoom, phone, text, social media, or a combination thereof. So if you're in the mood for a little intrigue or excitement, go check out the Find Experiences for Quarantine page on our website, ImmersionNation.com. Kendra, Jordan, welcome to the show. Great to be here. We're excited. It's nice to be here. (laughs) All right. So um, as previously discussed, and of course, as is custom, if you guys could pick a fictional or fantasy world that you would like to live in or spend some time adventuring in, what comes to mind? So we, we discussed this, and I think that the worlds that we would both like to inhabit um, is uh, Guillermo del Toro's uh, Shape of Water. So the world in which he set the Shape of Water. And actually, we sort of even discussed that we, we, we might think it may be the, it may be the same world that the, the Pan, Pan's Labyrinth actually happened in, um, depending on how like deep dive or like connected worlds you want to go. But we feel that they're similar enough in tone that that would be the sort of uh, the world that we would want to, to inhabit. Yeah, I think um, dark whimsy and a lot of magical realism. And a, a little bit of, uh, of levity and even a little bit of dance. I think that's also something that stood out to us in The Shape of Water. Are they these moments, the, the sort of heightened moment where she got to have her, her little like dance break um, or her, uh, what would you call it? Her um, dream ballet of yeah. sorts. Fantastic. Oh, my gosh. I am so excited to <laughs> come back to explore that. Um, I actually I've, I've it's been surprising to me how frequently magic realism and things in that vein come up. And I, I just think that's really fascinating. But I mean, contextually, it does make a lot of sense. Yeah, it's I, it's something we're both drawn to, I think, aesthetic wise. Um, I, I'm certainly a very, people would probably describe me as a very whimsical person being very influenced by fairy tales, folklore, that kind of stuff. But I think we're also very interested in exploring um real life scenarios uh, and certainly real life relationships. Uh, I think a lot of our more recent work has delved into more um, realistic world and human issues. Um, And then a lot of our work in the past has been a a little bit more whimsical, um, a lot of it influenced by, you know, children's stories or or things of that nature. So we, we do have sort of these two different sides to linked i think sometimes you get the more whimsical side and sometimes there's a more realistic side but i think that's why we're both drawn to to those worlds and that aesthetic so much is we like the combination of the two i also think that it sort of reflects uh i guess a little bit of the the immersive theater world um and 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 how we view it i think that there's this want to yeah to to um you know escape right like there's this need for escapism in immersive theater but then i think that there's also a need to at least from how we see it to be grounded in a little bit more of reality and like tackle real issues yeah yeah and that actually brings up something that i wanted to ask you both about so before we get into the specifics of your work thus far i wanted to ask you about a quote that you have on your website in the passage where you're describing your mission statement for link dance theater you have this quote believe it's reawakening and pursuing authentic desires experiencing the feeling of life and adventure and liberation of everyday life so first off where does that quote come from so it's from the the situationalists um they are a a sort of a a theater movement that happened in europe and in paris specifically and essentially it was was sort of inspired inspired us to sort of do a little bit more research about like well i think ai was inspired by uh a book that um, someone told me about and about like making theater for one 
Um, and then I told a professor friend and he said, oh, you should do some research. I told my professor friend about that, that book. And he was like, oh, you should do some research into the situationalists and how they composed theater and how they sort of approached the, their, their own sort of reality building. And so we found that quote and we sort of loved it because it sort of felt very similar uh, to sort of how we view ourselves um, in theater making. And that was a movement that happened many decades ago, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, it's funny, there are these seeds of immersive or what we consider consider immersive now that began sort of percolating, I think, back in the 60s and 70s. Um, and there's all these different kinds of movements that sprung up out of that. And so we're, we're so inspired by the granddaddies of immersive theater today. But there's even things that came before that that sort of started poking at the fourth wall that we are really interested in. We're just we love this form so much. And so we're interested in sort of all the different ways that it came to being. And I think that uh, originally, you know, they were a little bit more of a political group, but I think that what they really nailed down was the sort of imagining worlds. And I think that that's what we we do, even in sort of the, you know, the most basic of immersive shows, the ones that are truly immersive are reimagining the world in a different context and actually asking people to step into a reimagined world. That has new rules. And that you have to play by those rules and exists um, within that circle of trust between an audience and performers and the reality that you've built together, which is, I think, super interesting in terms of the idea of like play and allowing for play in in the world. And a lot of times I think um, why immersive theater is sort of caught fire is because it allows adults to play and to bend the world a little bit and to sort of experience things in a different light. And I think that's sort of what the the situationalists were trying to imagine, obviously, from a a more political perspective, but they did do a lot of performative actions. And I think that is public. Yeah, it was a a lot about like performing out in public and, you know, in the trains uh, of like Paris or, um, you know, performing in in sort of like different ways. And I think this might need to be cut, but I think (laughs) they were fact checked. Um, Please (laughs) fact check me. Uh, Guy Dubois, they were sort of inspired by uh, a, a philosopher who, um, you know, sort of was like writing about like spectacle and re- like using spectacle to reimagine the world. That is awesome. That is a part of the immersive world's lineage that I am not familiar with. And I'm very, very excited to get the chance to dig into some of that research there. So consider it fact checked and I'm very excited to do so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so moving from there, how did you both find your way into working in the immersive and interactive medium? That is a very good question. It's so funny. I feel like everyone who works in immersive has their own origin stories and they're all similar in, in certain ways, but I always love hearing them and, and I love talking about ours for some reason. It's just, it's nice to reflect on where you came from. Um, So I, I guess the long and short of it is, that Jordan and I met here in New York City. I was a cast member with Punch Drunk for about nine months. I originated a role up on the sixth floor called The Heath, where um, sort of back in 2013, 2014, where they were doing this sort of test in trying to create more story up there with a storyline that ran parallel to the main hotel storyline. So that was my first ever introduction to immersive uh, was through Sleep No More and Punch Drunk. And I learned so much in that like nine months of working with them. And then Jordan and I were introduced through a mutual friend. Um, Jordan was looking for a dancer at the time to uh, work with him on this piece that he was creating for an art gallery called Dust. And then I wanted to do some choreographic things for myself. So I employed him as a dancer. We just started working more together. And eventually we moved from um, like art galleries or more proscenium settings to more site specific work. And then we really started to dip our toes into the immersive realm and trying to make things more interactive and with more agency. And around, I think, 2000. 16 sort of that the christmas of 2015 2016 is when we made our partnership official and link dance theater became official official as in llc bank account all those grown-up things that we had to do (laughs) that connected us Um, yeah and jordan sort of had his own path which i'll let him describe he came up through more of the performance art world yeah so i i went to a, a program called performance studies at nyu 
and it's sort of interesting. Uh, I was I was kind of thinking about what what like would be considered immersive. I'd heard about Sleep No More. I'd had uh, a couple of friends who were in grad school with me who'd either worked with them in Boston um, and, a, and a friend, a really good friend and stage manager who we've uh, even employed uh, in some of our works who uh, started working for Sleep No More right before we graduated. Um, and then eventually that's when I sort of first saw Sleep No More. But I, I actually think that, um, so I, I actually was a student of Richard Schechner who sort of coined environmental theater, which was based on a different Polish artists, uh, also like I don't know the Polish term for environmental theater, but he had based um, his environmental theater, which you can go and look up the rules that he created for environmental theater on Wikipedia. Um, and sort of like the, the shorthand for those are very similar to immersive theater rules. But he actually um, charged these women um, in my program to do a, um, a their version of Burning Man on the on the floor of which, which performance studies housed in Tisha's art school. And they actually did have a magic circle and there were different rules for the world that everyone had to follow. And um, it was called Drowning Woman, which was also really funny. Um, but that might have been the first immersive experience now that I think of it, because it was based upon Schechner's environmental theater rules and as well as a couple of other things. And uh, then I saw Sleep No More and was sort of inspired um, by it in a lot of ways, but also sort of questioned whether or not it was the like, you know, the end or like what I would, you know, the, the sort of finite or like, is this, you know, what 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 else can be made from this, the sort of. Um, sparks started flying. And I remember that was when I sort of initially had an idea for like real people do, which was one of the sort of first shows we started venturing into like what it meant to be immersive. And, you know, we sort of made our, uh, you know, first baby step into that world in that kind of way. Um, well, I guess, yeah. 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 No, it was sort of the first site specific playing with that fourth wall, playing with the veil between audience and performer that we did it was it was the third show yeah it was third the third show, show third we show did but it was it was sort of this idea that i had that spurred from sleep no more of like okay cool but like what if this happened in real life like what if you could actually follow people around like this you know in like in reality and like sort of create a world that sort of existed next to the public and i think um that's a little bit of what the situationalists actually did were like spectacles in public but Again, I think it was about how do we infuse this like whimsy or this um, this sort of performative quality, but in a in a sort of public display uh, and, and sort of have a, a storyline or a narrative to follow. And yeah, that's that's sort of how we we started. And then obviously, like Kendra's context of our relationship is like you know additive to that. And then we started taking more and more risks as we sort of approached making art together and making performances together and questioning, okay, cool. So we're doing this next show. How do we, how do we challenge ourselves? Like what's going to be the the component that we bring in? That's a little bit of a risk for ourselves as artists, but then also that's going to sort of employ new techniques and, and, and uh, make us make smart and uh, different deci- decisions. Excuse me. Yeah. I think we are, we're always asking ourselves, okay, what's next? What haven't we done yet? What, and how can we push the immersive form further? So yeah, we've been so inspired by the big companies here, um, Punch Drunk and Third Rail Projects, obviously, because we are also a movement-based company, but we are also interested in uh, not just reproducing work like theirs. We're interested in pushing the boundaries even further and thinking about how dance can really evolve in the immersive form, I think is what we're interested in. And and also in how the the sort of genre bending that that immersive allows, uh, how to incorporate different different sort of subsets of immersive theater, whether it be an escape room um, and having unlocks to performances, or whether it be a like silent disco, like silent disco tech, or like challenging the way we think about um, AR and VR uh, and how it can actually help propel an immersive narrative. So. We're sort of not afraid of anything. It's more about having the time and energy to invest in doing those things. Yeah, yeah. And that actually brings us up to your most recent show, Remembrance. There, since the start, have been 11 shows, um, Remembrance being the 11th, correct? That is correct. Not all have been immersive. Uh, Like we said, we sort of started out more in the proscenium realm, but um, I think six fully immersive shows with several more site specific before that and a couple proscenium pieces as well but yeah number 11 11 in uh about five years so for listeners who might not know what is remembrance that is a good question um (laughs) well remembrance is a show we built uh for a house on governor's island 
and it tells the story of a woman named Margaret who's suffering from early onset Alzheimer's. Um, she is based on a real life person on Jordan's grandmother named Maggie, who's still living in Arkansas, who is dealing and living with Alzheimer's uh, today. Um, so Remembrance takes, takes a lot of Jordan's family history and real world stories and history that we've gleaned not only from Jordan's life, um, my own family experiences with dementia, but also experiences uh, that our cast has had, that friends have had. Um, and it's about creating this woman, Margaret, that you can actually meet and uh, step inside her mind and actually get to walk around inside her mind and experience what her life is like with early onset Alzheimer's. The piece uh, took place on Governor's Island and you were able to come to her house and celebrate her 65th birthday with her as her friend or close family member. Um, and so you started at this birthday party and you got to see Margaret. You knew she'd been diagnosed. You kind of were aware that this may be the last time you could actually really interact with her as her because her Alzheimer's was sort of entering the middle stage where she was more and more just not uh, not present with you as much. So it started in this very real world kind of scenario. And then through through different means, we were able to then turn the audience's expectations on on its head and you actually realize that you're in Margaret's mind, you're in Margaret's memory, and you got to traverse her memory and experience bits and pieces of her past. In sort of a, a poetic way, we, we allowed um, the audience to experience the drifting uh, or the sort of um, fading memories of someone's life within the context of a home and utilizing um, the spaces in the home, um, both uh, in ways that you would expect, like a kitchen um, being like a kitchen and where memories memories happen, like, you know, sort of like memories of like baking happen as or as a, a sort of childhood bedroom and how those memories fade and uh, sort of how they sort of slough away uh, and are forgotten um, and or those doors to those memories close, sort of reflecting the science of uh, Alzheimer's and how some uh, some pathways get blocked, just like some doors close and don't open again. Um, and we utilize the space as a, a sort of extension of that metaphor and uh, also like many other metaphors that are embedded into uh, or not just metaphors, but metaphors and realities of Alzheimer's that were embedded into the space itself. Wow. And that to me, like encountering the concept of remembrance um, for the first time reading through the review on No Percentium, just the review itself definitely tugged at the heartstrings pretty thoroughly. Definitely came away from reading that a um, little bit misty eyed there. Um, yeah, Asia, Asia uh, was amazing. She's a beautiful writer and really captured it so beautifully. So we're very much in debt to her painting such a beautiful picture of the show. And that whole idea of stepping inside of someone's mind in that way, I think, is a really brilliantly accessible way to approach what is kind of a difficult topic. Because for everybody who is a very significant chunk of the population who has had some kind of personal experience with dementia, I feel like to some degree has had the kind of experience of just wanting to know a little bit more about what's going on inside of the mind of, you know, your loved one while they're going through that. Exactly. And I think it's so funny. Like you said, I think almost everyone knows someone or has been affected by dementia or Alzheimer's in some way or will know someone in the future that will be affected by it. And yet there's still so much we don't know and we don't talk about it super readily. It's still something that's kind of like hush hush and pushed to the side. And oh, that is just that is a, a problem the elderly have to deal with and we don't really want to talk about it. And so I think that was something that really motivated us to create this piece, not only to pay tribute to Jordan's grandmother, but to really allow people not only to witness and interact with someone like Margaret, but um, not only did they get to watch her and be with her and see how she was experiencing Alzheimer's, but then they also got to see from her perspective as well. And they got to enter her mind and actually see and perceive things the way she perceived them in the hopes that maybe that could allow for more empathy and a little bit more understanding 
of how the disease affects people. And the tricky thing is the disease doesn't affect everyone the same way. It affects everyone differently, which is also partially what's very hard about talking about Alzheimer's. They say Um, if you've seen one case of Alzheimer's, you've seen one one case case of Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's. Um, So it it wasn't meant to be like, this is the Alzheimer's experience. It was meant to be, this is the Alzheimer's experience for Margaret. And you get to not only speak with her and touch her and be present with her, but you actually get to see her and touch her memories and be present with her memories as she's forgetting them. And then sometimes even become part of her memory. Yeah. Um, Some of the techniques that we employed actually ask the audience to step into a role, uh, a more specific role, I would say, in certain memories of being her friend or being her doctor. Because that's something that actually happens with Alzheimer's. Faces get confused. Um, People will think that there's... uh, that their son is actually their husband for a moment or that their friend was their doctor. It, it, it was based on the, the real research and the science, um, but also allowed for, it was a great device just uh, to allow for more interactivity. Um, and immersion itself. Yeah. We wanted to allow for that dynamic, that looseness, that space to be created for people to interact and to to sort of inquire and to sort of ask questions, but also be and empathize with someone who's losing their memory. And that's something that immersive does, I think, uniquely and and uh, better than other other forms. And one of those superpowers, actually, it brings to mind a recent interview I was listening to with uh, Brene Brown. And a point that she brought up in that interview was people oftentimes strive to and become attached to the idea of having extraordinary experiences and leading extraordinary lives until they find themselves dealing with something really, really difficult or traumatic or challenging. And then when that happens, people often transition to just being really, really excited for the ordinary, being really, really attached to and present with the the little moments that make life kind of okay on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's another thing that immersive does really uniquely well is give people a window into things that hopefully they won't have to experience or aren't experiencing right now, but at the same time, enough of a window and enough of a empathetically presented experience that you can kind of come out of an experience like that with a lot more awareness of just almost the whimsy in daily life um, back to kind yeah. of your earlier points. Well, exactly. And I, I think that's what we really strove to do for Margaret. Um, she was based on a real person, but through the process of the show became something else other than Jordan's grandmother. But I think we really strove to try and make her feel as real as possible. And that meant like the memories that she has, she wasn't, I mean, she was an extraordinary person in the sense that she was a mother and an artist, a painter and a teacher in these things, but she wasn't extraordinary in the sense that she saved lives or did any of these crazy sort of uh, sexy, you know, more intriguing things that, that immersive shows are often made up of, but we wanted you to come away with, having a sense of who this woman was that you really got to know her, not only just at her birthday party, sort of interacting with her in a very simple way, but through the process of getting to explore her memory, no matter which memories you saw, it was sort of a a sandbox kind of format. Once all the doors opened and uh, you could roam freely amongst her memories. Um, But we wanted you to come away with the sense of, I know who this person is, no matter which memories you saw. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually do want to come back to a few more dynamics of remembrance in a moment here, but I wonder if now might be a good time to transition into the make it immersive segment. Sure. Let's do it. Mm -hmm. Right on. So creating immersive in the world of the shape of water by good sir Guillermo del Toro. What, what comes to mind? Like what would you want to capture of that world and convey inside an immersive piece? Well, I think it would be really sort of highlighting those two different elements that intrigue us so much, the magic and the whimsy, but also the real world stakes and the real world um, and real flesh and blood people who inhabit that world. So creating characters um, that 
you feel like you know them. They don't feel like magical creatures. They don't feel like people um, that you couldn't meet on the street, but they get put into a world that has some magical circumstances um, and real risk. And yeah. I think that is something that um, I, like Toro does really well um, is that he, he actually, there, there are sta- real stakes. Um, yeah, whether in Pan's Labyrinth, like living through a civil war or in Shape of Water, set in the time of uh, Jim Crow and dealing with that very real racism and... Probably, was that before the Disabilities I'm probably before the Disabilities yeah, Act. Yeah, you know, just the antagonism of anything different, that that main character is deaf. And so just dealing with those very real-world stakes, but having these magical elements as part of it, for me, it's always, it makes life seem almost more real, in a way, like the magic amplifies the the risk, as Jordan said, and magic amplifies these real people somehow. And the, and the wonder as well, right? That there there might be something, you know, something else going on that you're not, you know, you're not aware of. Um, and I think in a, in a lot of ways, that's, I, you know, part of the human condition, right? It's, it's the, the sort of, um, you know, like, why like why is the sky blue right or like you know those those things that we want like have always wondered or like you know like obviously there is a scientific reason but like you know like when you're a child right like you don't really know but like you know that there has to be a reason or maybe you don't know that there has to be a reason and and it's just the way that it is but those sort of imagined um qualities of the world and you know why like why does she have that you know that birthmark or you know those little things that are or sort of like hints of like something more that you're not certain of. Um, but then you sort of discover it and then you realize that while the world is really like a beautiful place and has its own sort of, um, you know, whimsy or, or things you have yet, yet to discover. Oh, I've never thought about it in that way, but it does make a lot of sense. Like the idea that a magical element can actually do more to cement you in the world, um, both narratively and emotionally, than draw you out of it because it reinstates the awareness of things that are bigger that oftentimes fade into the background of daily life in the real world. Exactly. I, I think it's it's similar to uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez and, and his writings of magical realism, like A Hundred Years of Solitude and those books like that that incorporate magic into what otherwise seems like a very real life um it just amplifies those qualities and i think the way we would make if we were having to make an immersive experience um in like the world of shape of water or in the world of pan's labyrinth i think the way we would one of the ways we like to use many different tricks but i think we would use dance as a way to communicate parts of that magic um, because dance has an otherworldly sort of ethereal effect. And often we, we, we think that movement can communicate more than just words can in certain situations. And so I think we would probably employ movement to allow some of that magic to come across because obviously we're not in a movie. We can't, you know, employ all those amazing uh, visual effects, uh, but we could use some practical effects uh, to have that whimsy and, and, and magic. enhance yeah. enhance the sort of uh, narrative in a way. And I think that the um, the one of the interesting things is is that she's deaf, right? And so, like, she inherently uses movement to tell mm-hmm. part of her story. Yeah. And um, that would be beautiful, sort of like the the most recent production of Spring Awakening on Broadway, the Deaf West production, they seamlessly incorporated ASL in the choreography. choreography. So that would be an amazing uh, new challenge to work with um, the deaf community possibly and create movement from a sign language for that specific scenario in The Shape of Water. Um, I also think that uh, there... I guess like to your, to your point about, you know, telling stories and and especially like utilizing magical realism to sort of comment or um, inspire your perspective on on reality. And I think that's often why people have told stories for for centuries, right? You think Mm -hmm. about parables or, you know, like even, um, you know, thinking about like, 
like the uh, the Torah and like the the way that like stories are told and like yes they're like fables or like you know there's some sort of like mysticism to those those stories and inherently right but they're about explaining things that like are sort of difficult to explain sometimes sometimes need a little levity or a little like a little magic and that's probably why we've been not only because we believe that dance is a, a beautiful mode of storytelling but I think that's why we've also hung on to it um and even though we've introduced text and magic and music and all these other different elements that we now combine with the movement to tell stories but i think there is something magical about dance that we always come back to and that i think allows stories to be communicated and revealed in ways that just other mediums can't yeah yeah most certainly from there yeah just as a brief protestorial or logistical note, I've definitely heard of people maybe experimenting with adding dance to an immersive experience for the first time and sometimes it feeling a little bit disjunct. I think kind of the foundational usage of dance that you guys just described there is almost like a key principle that can be used insofar as making dance a cohesive part of any immersive piece, um, understanding that it is other and it is separate and thusly can be used um, with intention as other and separate to lend to the piece instead of having it be kind of a jarring or surprising thing that just planted into a piece. Well, exactly. And we've, I think we've really grown into our thinking on this. Um, I think the danger is you start out using dance just because you're from a dance background or but just because you like dance. Um, and what we've realized over the years is it's just like immersive. The same reason why you're asking yourself, why is this immersive? Why am I telling this story with the immersive medium rather than writing a book or making a film or doing a proscenium play? You have to ask yourself the same question. Why am I using dance for this piece? And if you don't answer that question, it is exactly like you said, going to feel sort of just put on like they just wanted to use dance here and they didn't really take the time to figure out what it meant in the world of the piece. You have to do the work and, and answer those hard questions, I think, in any mode. I think you need to do that for text as well. Like, why am I telling this story through text rather than music? Or or why why is there music present in this moment? I think you need to answer those questions for all the mediums, but especially for dance. I think dance has gotten sometimes a bad rap in the immersive realm because people don't ask the you know people don't ask those questions of themselves before they they start throwing the kitchen sink at things yeah most certainly um and kind of keeping in the vein of talking about the practice the behind the scenes of having an immersive piece come together um i actually really wanted to ask you guys about governor's island and yeah. what that looked like in both producing in that venue and um, getting the chance to produce in that venue in the first place. Uh, what was what was that like? It was it was its own unique sort of uh, experience. Yeah, um, it was a little little wild, honestly. And truthfully, we we like um, I think that we've kind of grown accustomed to finding a new space to do a do a show in. And so I think that, you know, we've hopped around to Coney Island and a, a church on the Upper West Side. And so we actually had been uh, we'd indexed Governor's Island as something or someplace or somewhere we really wanted to do a show because having a unique space and as well as sort of control over that space um, was a huge opportunity for us as creators and not sort of dealing with um, potentially like other occupants of the space uh, or sort of like timing and the timeframes of, uh, you know, of utilizing a space and having restrictions based upon like how many shows you can do or like, you know, what's up next uh, in a, you know, a theater or a spaces lineup. And so Governor's Island was sort of a unique proposition and you actually had to submit a proposal of what you wanted to do on the house. And um, there had to be a public component uh, as well as a, you know, a sort of an idea of like what, you know, what and how things were going to happen. And we really had, I think, a good pitch for Remembrance sort of wanting to do a more, you know, show based in, in reality and then having the ability to utilize a house, um, you know, and having full reign of that house. But there also were some drawbacks <laughs> yeah. as much as we loved Governor's Island and, and all of their support. Yeah, they gave us so much support, which was really, really wonderful. And having, like Jordan said, having full control over the house was just a luxury we had not ever had before in our space. But 
With that comes the fact that you are on an island. I mean, when these houses come to you, there is nothing in them. They're truly a, a blank slate. And, and you do have a lot of free reign to to almost not, not quite anything that you want. They are historic houses, so you can't really um, remodel them or change the interior uh, structurally. Yeah, but you, you can't can go pretty tearing much, down walls. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you can pretty much do, you know, anything you want in terms of painting or creating art installations and such things of that nature. Um, but there is nothing there for you. So we, and there's no running water either and minimal e- electricity. So we had to bring literally everything with us, not only the props and things to populate the house but all the equipment to paint and you know there was no water to like wash anything off so we would have to like fill water bottles and bring water with us and it was just a whole it was a it was was definitely like um a learning experience for if we ever return and what we would want if we did return and and sort of like learning about a you know a sort of a space that we we had control over, but also like gave up a lot of access to sort of luxuries of having a space with a, you know, a running bathroom or, you know, being able to like necessarily like not necessarily having to take an hour and a half to travel to said space. Yeah. So, I mean, it was an amazing learning experience having to build something with minimal resources and from the ground up, we learned so, so much doing that. Um, And ultimately it was, the, the home was perfect and coming so much from a site specific take on things. Our locations are really one of the most important things to us when we start creating a story or building a world. The the place, the location becomes a character in and of itself. And so that house was so important to the creation of Margaret's life and the story of remembrance that, I mean, if we were to do it again um, and we're hoping that in the future, we will be able to do remembrance again maybe even in the near future possibly but it will be a different show outside of the context of governor's island in that house it'll be a whole different show in a new home in a new location we we think about our shows in that way that we would love and we do um, remount our shows but they always change because once you have a different location it necessitates the piece changing and innovation for sure yeah Yes, yes. And I'm sure that a potential remount um, could potentially be uh, significantly easier with running water available. I did not <laughs> yeah. know that Governor's Island did not have running water. I- uh, just in the his- yeah, just in the historic houses, uh, they do have running water in sort of specific locations around the island. But in the homes where the art, uh, art and sort of the uh, social activism happens, there is none of that. <laughs> Though funny enough, I, I we accidentally bumped into the dishwasher, and I like I sort of like gasped when it turned on because like out of all the things that you have connected, the dishwasher is still connected to power. Of course, it is. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> oh, that's way too funny. Oh man. Um. Yeah, and I I can imagine that probably on the other side of it, like just the exercise of going through and producing with so many limitations in that right could open up a lot of doors and possibilities in the future for you guys understanding kind of what's possible with less like knowing that you can produce in much more limited and restricted conditions oh yeah i I would say that's become our specialty you know we are able to do quite a lot with very little, whether it's very little money or very little time or very little access to space. I think we pride ourselves on uh, innovating. In, yeah, innovating out of our limitations and really leaning into those limitations. So hopefully that they become part of the piece rather than a hindrance to the piece. And on that note, is there anything on the future of immersive, broadly speaking, that you guys are excited about, whether it be a particular technique in a show or any broader trend or anything of that nature? Um, I think something uh, that was talked about a little bit more last year, um, we're certainly interested in exploring more comedic aspects of immersive theater. I, I think we we tend, and I think a lot of the immersive genre tend to go really hard towards the, the drama or, you know, the noir kind of aesthetic. Um, so we're, we're certainly interested, uh, possibly in, in one of our next pieces towards the end of the year of exploring of the lighter side, maybe more satire, uh, more comedy in the immersive genre. Um, 
little bit more jest. Yeah, a little bit more jest. Um, still with very much the real world issues underneath, but coming at that more through the lens of comedy is something we're interested in exploring. Um, but I think we're also really interested, like we were talking about before, is just how the different genres continue to meld, how live actors can continue to be incorporated more into the VR side, how escape rooms and immersive theater come closer and closer together. All that stuff is so exciting. And I I think we're looking forward to different categories being created that don't even have names yet. Yeah. I would say that uh, I I'm interested to see, um, especially as there are more creators growing and in more locations. I'm, I'm interested to see um, if more mashups of um, companies actually happen. Oh, yeah. Collaborations. Yeah. I think that there have been some mild collaborations and then, and things like that. But I think that obviously those, those are sort of going to grow as the community of immersive creator grows, uh, community, the community of immersive creators grow. That was a tongue twister. I know. Uh, uh, but yeah, I think that I'm excited about that. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Um, yeah, what would a East Coast West Coast collaboration look like? That'd be super interesting. Ooh, I think that just there are so many things that will crop up in the next year, in the next couple of years, that at this point in time we can't even wrap our heads around, and that's that's just so exciting. Yeah, it really is. I, I think we we feel so lucky to be a part of the community at this point in time. It's still such a wild west, which is really, really fun. We're all kind of trying to figure out what immersive can be together. Um, and it's it's just so fun. And it's it's so fun to see new people joining the community every day and new creators coming in and seeing what the how the older creators grow and evolve it's it's really amazing i think the work that's being done right now and we're both so excited to see where things can go and we're very very hopeful and we certainly are interested in uh, helping the community stay around as long as it possibly can i actually um I, on, a, on a lighter note i definitely agree with everything that you just said but when you said the wild west i mean <laughs> i like just thought about immersive and like storytelling and then i just imagined all the immersive creators on the oregon trail oh, and like, <laughs> so like traveling out west and being like oh gosh please no one please get dysentery don't get dysentery like clean <laughs> only drink clean water yeah <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yes. The mm. Oregon Trail Immersive to pending, pending. Someone will yeah. do it eventually. Actually, it might have already been done now that I'm thinking about it. I feel like I've uh, heard someone mention it in the past. I'm not sure. though. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> it, you know. um, if not. Well, free, free idea. Right, yeah. right. Um, so from there, where <laughs> where can people find you? Where can people find your work either in real life and or online? Um, I think uh, our website and Instagram are probably the the most um, uh, sort of up to date. Uh, it's linked dance theater theater with an R E, not E R uh, dot com, and it is also at linked dance theater on Instagram. And um, I think you can even search linked dance theater on Facebook and find us. Um, we we also do a newsletter, but it's um, in you know only as frequent as we need to alert people of our work. Um, you know, the, the sort of limitations of being a, a sort of small team, a uh, small growing team of, of artists. Um, you know, as we try to keep the platforms uh, that are most useful up to date and sort of post about things that are that are happening. Um, but yeah, those are those are how you can sort of find us. And then most of our shows do happen in New York for the time being because we are a New York based company. Um, but you can always find updates on those platforms to, uh, if you need to sort of like or reach out to us. Um, we'll be glad to tell you what's yeah. going on. And hopefully in the future, we will come to more places. Um, but yeah, just New York for now. In Pasadena this summer. In, or Pasadena. Pasadena in, in March. In March, not yeah. this summer. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And I suspect probably a large percentage of the audience of this show is probably also going to be out there in Pasadena. So... For everybody who is intending to find themselves at the Pasadena Playhouse for the Here Summit slash Festival, go find these fantastic immersive creators and um, say hi and experience their work. And uh, of course, if you have the opportunity, see what they're up to while they're in New York. Guys, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Yeah, we we could talk about this all night. It's it's really fun for us. 
on that note, once again, thank you so much for everybody who's out there listening. Everything that has been mentioned in the show can be found in the show notes at immersionnation.com slash podcast. And until next time, thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to this week's Immersive Community Briefing, a new segment of the podcast coming with the start of season two. Here, we update you on new shows, answer listener questions, and talk about what's happening out there in the world of immersive entertainment. So, to start off with, as promised, we'll dig into the 2020 Immersive Industry Report. Over the last few years, it's been a common consensus that the industry is growing quickly, but now we have data. The report opens by saying, the immersive entertainment industry was valued in 2019 at $61.8 billion prior to the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. From there, the top of the executive summary does note that a majority percentage of this number does include theme parks and haunted attractions, as well as a growing excitement for virtual reality. But Concerning the innovative and independent immersive that we have largely covered on the podcast so far, a rising tide raises all boats, you know? And on that note, the report later states that even without theme parks, the industry is still valued at $9.7 billion, which ain't no chicken scratch. The breakdown of that remaining sum is as follows. $5.97 billion for VR, $2.06 billion for augmented reality and mixed reality combined, $1.1 billion for haunted attractions, $656 million for escape rooms, $28.1 million for immersive theater, and $28 million for experiential art museums such as Meow Wolf and the Museum of Ice Cream. Again, this is a very small portion of the more than 100-page industry report, so we'll leave a link to the report in the show notes. Coming up next month, we have Recon, an event created by the fantastic team at Room Escape Artist that is described as the Reality Escape Convention on August 23rd and 24th. This will be a free digital event for the escape room community, owners, designers, and players. This is an event that is typically a live conference for the escape room community, but its necessarily online format this year could prove a great chance for those who spend more of their immersive lives outside of the escape room sphere to spend some time getting to know this part of the immersive genre without a long drive or plane tickets. Finally, from the interwebs, an actualization of an idea I've been excited about for quite some time. The blurring of the lines between traditional media and experiential media. A Facebook post by, I apologize ahead of time for likely mispronouncing your name, Nathan Thabovitsky, who worked on the game portion of this work, reads, Hello everybody, here is a three-minute summary of the parallel experience we created for Jason Siegel's TV series, Dispatches from Elsewhere, on AMC. One of the interesting technical aspects of this project was our use of a back-end architecture we call Saga to track audience members' progress across multiple digital platforms. Think of the way targeted ads follow you, only in service of storytelling. First off, that's incredible. For those of you who are not familiar, Dispatches from Elsewhere is a TV show about an alternate reality game, or ARG. This show was paralleled by an actual ARG that played out across the country and in connection with the clues hidden in the show itself. That is the kind of blending of traditional and experiential media of reality and fiction that I dearly hope we get the chance to see become more common. Be warned, there are definitely some spoilers for the show in the video about the real parallel game and the show itself. But with that said, the link to the video, that aforementioned three-minute summary, is in the show notes. And that is it for this week's Immersive Community Brief. Once again, thank you for listening, and of course, stay healthy, stay curious, and thank you for joining us on this adventure.